We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And it used to be that government cared about the dignity of humanity and that uh, the government was there to help us, to serve us, and to use our taxes to pay for Basically, good things, although there's a lot we always disagree with. You can never have total unanimity. While nobody likes paying taxes, as the great Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. observed, taxes are the price we pay for civilization. Of course, civilization is a relative term. Who pays what? Where does the money go? How fair is the tax system? Who knows? There were big protests around 200 cities on April 15, 2017, all demanding Trump reveal his taxes, which he says he will not do. Can the pressure work? Is the taxation system fair? And what are the chances that it will actually get more fair? Or in the proposed Republican tax reforms, will the tax system actually become even less fair? Have presidents and members of Congress ever not been serving the interests of the richest among us? A lot to talk about. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Josh Hoxie, Director of the Program on Opportunity and Taxation at the good old Institute for Policy Studies. Josh, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Hey, Bert. Thanks for having me. And uh, he is co-author of several Institute for Policy Study reports, including the widely circulated Billionaire Bonanza, the Forbes 400, and the rest of us. His most recent article is A Tax Plan Only a One Percenter Could Love. Other recent articles include Immigrants Pay More Than Their Fair Share, and The White House Budget Proposal Doesn't Add Up. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Josh Hoxie. America was actually conceived out of a tax protest, correct? Yeah, I mean, we all heard about the tea rallies where they where they dumped tea into the Boston Harbor, and those of us who grew up around here, you know, we've gone out and looked at where that happened, and, and we heard all about how people were upset about England not, you know, representing right. us as a, for, for in return for our taxation. But, but really what, what we were talking about back then was tax fairness, and that's still what we're talking about today. Is the tax code fair, and if not, how can we make it fair? Uh, it's always good to define terms. There was a period of time where America actually didn't even have an income tax. When did the government institute the income tax, and why? And what was the money used for? And, and even before that, my understanding is the whole 
uh, Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, was about, it wasn't an income tax, but they were, uh, the government wanted to collect taxes from the debtors to pay for the War of Independence. And, of course, the, the debtors who uh, didn't really want to pay that, they wanted the creditors, the people with a lot of money to pay. And it was quite a, a little battle about that, and it ended up being some kind of a compromise. So when did the actual income tax uh, uh, get instituted? Yeah, I mean, there were, there were early income taxes as, as far back as the early 1800s. Um, it wasn't until the early 1900s where we saw um, the 16th Amendment um, that, uh-huh. that gave Congress the power to collect taxes. And, and you know, we at that time, this the exact same time that we had the federal income tax, we also had the federal inheritance tax where we could tax the estates of the very wealthy in this country. Um, and both of those were in response to the need for the federal government to to generate revenue in order to do things in the, in the public good, whether they be the common defense or the or the, the sort of basic uh, running and organizing of, of the country. And, and since then, a uh, hundred uh, or some odd years later, we've we've maintained uh, these revenue structures and we've um, you know instituted. A progressive income tax, in which we, you know, as a as a founding doctrine of this country, we ask the wealthiest of among us to pay more than the mm-hmm. poorest among us. Um, and the same goes for the for the estate tax, where we ask, you know, the very very wealthy uh, to contribute uh, more so than than the the, the poor middle class. And some people uh, object to that. They they like to see something like a, a flat tax. They think that uh, well, wealthy people have earned all that money. Why should they pay a higher percentage of their tax money? What what do you what's a, a quick easy response to that? Yeah, I mean you you hear this often where it's you know people are describe themselves as a, as a self-made man or self-made woman and, and they should be able to hold on to all of the money they'll ever make and right. and, and and that argument is interesting because what it does is is it essentially ignores all of the facets of the American uh, economic system, judicial system, uh, and all the other uh, business system you know the things in place that allowed them and enabled them to to generate their wealth and and, and massive income so. So I mean, you know, what I usually point people to is like, all right, so you you know, you're a smart person, you've obviously done well for yourself. If you were born in Somalia, you know, a country with no functioning government mm-hmm. to speak of, mm-hmm. would you have been able to make the same money? Would you have been able to generate the same the same fortune? I, I, I doubt it. <laughs> um so I think that's a it's a very quick and easy response to look at these people and say, like, didn't you benefit from the public roads that you yes. used to work on, the public education system, the judicial system that protects your intellectual property. I mean, it, and the list goes on and on. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here. Uh, our guest today is uh, uh, Josh Hoxie, Director of the Program on Opportunity and Taxation at the Institute for Policy Studies. We're talking about taxes. And one of my favorite presidents, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, in 1935, he signed a tax into law which was known by some as the Soak the Rich Tax, which we were just talking about a little bit. FDR and his New Dealers wanted to finance the war uh, uh, equitably, and I presume he's talking about uh, uh, the, the war of uh, the First World War, but later on, of course, the, the big new war came up with stiff tax rates on higher incomes. At the time of grave national danger in 1942... 
when the war was underway, uh, Roosevelt told Congress that no American citizen ought to have a net income after he has paid his taxes, and of course it's all he back then, you know, just forgive that, of more than $25,000 a year. That would be about, so $25,000 a year in 1942 is about 350000 in today's dollars. So he was suggesting no one ought to have a net income more than $350,000 a year in today's dollars. Of course, the Republicans in Congress fought that. They insisted that taxing the rich heavily would lead inexorably to communism. By the war's end, America's wealthy would be paying taxes on income over 200000 at a 94% statutory rate. So Americans making over $250,000 in 1944, that's over $3.2 million annually today. Who the heck makes that much money? Anyway, they did pay 69% of their total incomes in federal income taxes after exploiting every loophole they could find. But in, in 2007... Uh, America's 400 highest earners paid just 18.1% of their total incomes. So it went from 69% in 1944 down to 18% uh, after loopholes in federal taxes. What can we learn from this history about pressure for tax fairness? It, it gets uh, complicated and, and very messy, doesn't it? It is, you know, and, and you know what's interesting about this is that it's complicated by uh, a bitch. It's comp- it's complicated by saying one thing and doing another. So, so often, you know, conservatives, these these folks who believe in tax cuts for the wealthy, they say they want to help a class, and they do something that exclusively helps their their ultra wealthy uh, donors, campaign donors, and backers. So, it takes serious mental gymnastics uh, to, to say that, you know, oh, it's going to help your average working family, uh, you know, considerably if we, if we give massive tax cuts to the rich. Yep. And, and furthermore, it's, it's, it's absolute fantasy to pretend that the American people want to see big tax cuts in the rich. The most recent study on this oh. was from Politico. It found 85% of the public, including 80% of Trump voters, believe taxes on upper-income Americans should either stay the same or be raised. So, I mean, we all just had Easter and Passover. I mean, we all sat across the table from our Trump-loving uncle, and I'm sure we disagreed considerably, but that person still, you know, for all their disagreements they might have, still don't want to see tax cuts on the the rich. Uh, And yet that's what what Congress is currently pushing. That's what uh, Congress has been pushing. It's, It's it's moving the country in the exact opposite direction of what the American people want. Well, that's interesting that, you know, the huge majority of people want some degree of tax fairness, want the rich to pay more than they're currently paying. And yet Congress uh, seems to ignore that. That's uh, pretty interesting. And I think a lot of the people who did vote for Trump, none of my relatives, I don't think, uh, uh, even they, you know, they didn't, I think, buy into the whole, uh, you know, let plutocracy uh, prevail over our form of government, you know, let the rich do everything. They didn't vote for that. There was some degree of populism. And uh, so it's interesting how money in politics once again comes back. It's like the main issue. It doesn't almost matter what issue you're talking about, whether it's agriculture, the environment, money in politics, you know, that's, that's who they listen to. Uh, and back in the 1950s, when I grew up, uh, they were a lot more fair than they are today. 
our president back then was the uh, radical socialist Dwight Eisenhower, who, of course, he was a Republican, a conservative, moderate Republican. Uh, I believe there were many more tax brackets in, in the 1950s. In the election of 2016, Bernie Sanders claimed that the top rate under Eisenhower was 90%. Was that, I mean, he claimed that under the Republican president, the top tax rate was 90%. Is that possible? What was it in, uh, during the 1950s, the, the tax brackets? Yeah, I mean, that, that's not Bernie Sanders saying that. That's the Internal Revenue Service saying that. Um, hmm. and, and the reality is that uh, it's true. In, in the 1950s, you know, moderate, conservative, former general Dwight Eisenhower, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Republican had a tax rate above 90%. And, and Bernie has said this uh, over and over, that Dwight Eisenhower would not be welcome in the 2017 Republican Party. His ideas around uh, public investment and the public good are no longer reminiscent or even or even feasible within what, what's become of the Republican Party. And you know, I should say I spent four years working for Bernie Sanders in his Senate office, and... Uh-huh. Um, you know, a couple times I remember talking to him, and he's talked about this in speeches about the fact that, you know, having a massive amount of wealth, more than you could ever spend yeah. in in a dozen lifetimes, much less one, and yet still wanting more, yeah. uh, is an absolutely bizarre dynamic. I mean, why on earth should anybody need or want more money than they could ever conceivably spend in 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 a lifetime? Or even their children's lifetime, or their children's children's lifetime, and there's, you know, I would venture to guess that there's there's a level of psychosis at yes. play. There's a level of Absolutely. mass psychosis at play if we look at the top, you know, one percent, point one percent who have more money than the history of money, <laughs> and yet still want more. It is really kind of sick. I think it's just it's some kind of psychotic situation that the professionals really ought to look into. I mean, we've all known people. I think uh, not very many who have incredible, unthinkable amounts of money, and they're in a frenzy for more. You look at this uh, Benito the Cheeto, the, the president of the United States right now. He, I really think he's using the presidency to make more money. It's, it's really odd. So should the system be serving that? I don't think so. What, what were the—I know there were some various rates, uh, tax brackets within the 1950s. What, what were they? I, I, I can't— Yeah, I mean, what, what we're looking at is a steeply uh, progressive. So it wasn't like uh, you making, you know, average worker out there today making, you know, family of four making $54,000. They weren't paying 90%. They were paying very little in taxes. But, you know, as you got up the, right. the ladder, I mean, to today's, to today's equivalent of a millionaire, it got up over 90%. And below that, you know, seventy percent below that, there was a lot more tax brackets. There was like thirteen tax brackets at the yeah, time. Yeah, And and I think what's interesting about today is that there's this narrative around the wealthy, and part of it is enforced by the wealthy because they keep doing this, you know, chicanery of of offshore offshore tax shelters and loopholes and buying politicians. Mm-hmm. But there's also a subset of the of the very very wealthy who are as concerned uh, about fairness as as you or I might be. Uh, so there's two groups out there. One uh, we work closely with called Patriotic Millionaires. Ah, uh, yes, good group. And and these these folks are out there. You know, they've made money and they recognize the value of of the public good, and, and they are willing to contribute in trying to get their fellow uh, multi millionaires and millionaires out there to 
to do the same. And there's another group, a younger group called Resource Generation. They're doing uh, similar work. These folks are mostly younger uh, heirs to, to great fortunes, and, and they're looking around saying, you know, we won the genetic lottery. We right, get that. Right. Uh, and we can never give away the privilege that we were born with, but we can do something good with it. So there is, you know, some movement out there around, you know, wealthy people um, trying to, you know, encourage others and themselves uh, to contribute their fair share. On the other end of the spectrum, there's folks like the Koch brothers who will do anything and everything they can to dismantle the American government, dismantle mm-hmm. the system of public revenue. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a spectrum that we're looking at. And unfortunately, the Koch brothers have a lot more power than yes, the rest these days. Ah, oh, yes, they do. We're supposed to be a democracy. And uh, keeping democracy alive is a heavy lift. I hope you, dear listener, are doing what you can as well. The top tax rate today is just under 40%. What do this top 1% or one-tenth of 1%, where there's very few people but a tremendous amount of money, what approximately do they actually pay, even though the top rate is 39.6%? Yeah, so, so I hope listeners will bear with us for a little bit as we, as we talk about percentages, which I've had this conversation plenty of times where I watch people's eyes roll back in their head and glaze over as we talk about you know, variable tax rates. But you know, the New York Times wrote a uh, story last year, a big expose, where they showed that the, the top 0.1% in effect, have a private tax system. There's a tax system that, that works for the rest of us, where we all, you know, every year chip in our, our fair share. Then there's one for the upper echelon, where the 0.1% pays about 17%. So that's, that's right about half of what it's supposed to be. And uh, the same is true for uh, Fortune 500 companies. You know, the, the top um, corporate tax is supposed to be around 35%. Their uh, actual effective tax rate is significantly lower than that. Um, the the 73% of these Fortune 500 companies have at least one offshore tax haven. Mm-hmm. Um, these, these sort of hidden money um, that, that that exists, and the the typical Fortune 500 company pays about 21% in taxes. When they, again, the, you know, Donald Trump goes on TV and says, "Oh, the corporate tax rate is so high; it's 35%. You know, we need to bring it down." I think that the, the proportion, if we're going to focus on one number as to how high taxes are, I think the number that's more interesting it has to do with what proportion of uh, the, the federal uh, money, how much, how much public money there is, the, the GDP, gross domestic product, what proportion of that is made up of taxes. And if we compare the United States, which is a wealthy country, maybe the wealthiest country in the world, to, to the rest of the wealthy countries, other, other, you know, what's called the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development. This is the short term for what we call other rich nations. Uh-huh. If we look at those countries, the United States' uh, proportion of our tax revenue to our gross domestic product is 26%. So about a quarter of uh, our uh, national wealth uh, is, is captured by taxes and then it's spent on things but mostly go back out to the same people. Uh, if you look at a country like Belgium, 45%. France, 45%. Denmark, 46%. I mean, that's, that's almost double. That's, that's very you know, close to double yeah. of, of what the United States is. And, and the reason that's important is because, you know, we are not we are not a high tax state or not a high tax country. I mean, over and over and over, we hear of TV every freaking time you turn on the TV. Yeah. Uh, you know, taxes are too high, and and often you get Democrats and Republicans 
arguing over who should cut taxes more. Um, right, right. And, and the reality is we shouldn't be cutting taxes at all. It's a total, it's a total misnomer. It's, a, it's, you know, we're not allowed to say the word lie these days, but, you know, whatever the closest we can come to as, as, as uh, <laughs> you can say it here. to what this is, the, the word lie is very close. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's interesting, and, and, and the fact, you know, those other countries, there's a, a very high happiness quotient in those countries, and they include health insurance. Their taxes include health. I mean, I don't know about you. I have to pay a lot for health insurance, and I don't like it. Uh, you know, and, and it's like, what are we getting for it? And it, it's interesting how the discussion has, has gone to that and that, you know, people argue about who's going to cut taxes more. It's just this mantra that it doesn't really make sense. And I find this interesting. Economists have pointed out that American economic growth has been higher during periods with much higher marginal tax rates. And economic growth is lower when tax rates were substantially lower. That seems counterintuitive. Can you explain that, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this should not be counterintuitive. It's only a function of a very broken dialogue around taxes in this country that this seems weird. The basic tenet is that you know, when we have uh, higher taxation, we have uh, more public spending, we have better public programs, better education system, better infrastructure, um, you know, stronger programs. We invest in things like early childhood education, and we know for every dollar we spend in early childhood education, we get about eight or nine bucks back in in public good and in, in, in economic activity. Um, you know, we want these these dollars spent. To, to say that, oh, if we cut taxes, we'll get ahead, really that that's a race towards uh, an economic and, and social structure uh, that, again, I mentioned Somali earlier, and I, I hope no Somalians are listening, uh, baring their teeth at me. I think it's just one example of a lot of examples where uh, a country without a functioning federal government, um, you know, is not, is not a really strong example. On the flip side, you have somewhere like Denmark. So, so I spent six right. months living in Denmark. Um, nice. You know, it's a. If you listen to Donald Trump, it's a socialist hellhole. If you listen <laughs> to anyone that lives there, it's the happiest country on earth. Yes. And uh, what, what a lot of people don't know about Denmark that I hope uh, I hope listeners uh, might find interesting, Forbes magazine. By no definition, a lefty rag. You know, <laughs> one of the premier yeah. business publications of this country, Forbes yes. magazine, oh, considered yeah. Denmark to be the top business environment really? in the world. Wow. Now, how could a high tax, uh, dare I say, socialist country be considered a top business environment? And it's really simple. If you want to set up business there, you have a steady flow of workers that are highly educated. If they get sick, the federal government. Uh, you know, has a public health and and uh, health insurance system that that helps their, um, you know, get better. They have um, public welfare programs that help people. They have education systems. They have just really highly functioning. You get one card, and your card is both your library card, your health insurance card. It all works very seamlessly. It's not to say it's a utopian country. They have their own problems, um, but it, but it functions so much better. Than, than this country, and they can focus on other problems that we are, you know, caught up on uh, that, that we can't focus on here. And, and I heard, and I found this fascinating, that in Denmark, if you don't like your job, the government wants you to quit. 
They want you to find something that you're happier doing. That way you'll be more productive, and somebody else can do that job. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's a function of, uh, of a poorly functioning economy where people stay in jobs they don't want. Oh, and what's interesting terrible. with our health insurance system, this happens to, to, to friends of mine where they, you know, they want to go out and start a new company. They want to go out and take a little risk and see if they can uh-huh. uh, you know, get ahead. Yeah. But they can't because if they, if they get off their health insurance you know, uh, and right. then they break their leg, uh. Uh, they'll be in debt you know, 20 grand. I mean, when I was in college and, and studying the health care system before the Affordable Care Act went into place, and medical bankruptcy was the number one cause of bankruptcy, you yeah, know, getting sick huge. and then not being able to afford your bills. It's huge. Um, and, and that matters to a, a strong economy, people being able to be healthy and, and pay their bills. And talk about wasting time and wasting money. Americans spend a collective six billion hours filing taxes annually. Six, six billion hours, yeah. Six billion hours a year filing taxes I don't like that. <laughs> also, so I, I heard a little Noam Chomsky, you know, the famous MIT professor before. Wonderful man. Um, and, and, and Noam has an interesting point. What he, what he says is that, you know, if we lived in a functioning democracy, if we lived in a country that, that really, you know, took care of its people and we felt like we were all really deeply connected and, and, mm-hmm. and ingrained in each other, mm-hmm. tax day would be like the 4th of July. We'd all be flying our flags and celebrating and thinking what a great contribution we're making to the common good to each other you know that what a, what a great thing that would be uh instead we all begrudge having to to write the damn check and, and fill out the forms for for hours and hours on end and it's so endlessly complicated i mean the reality is that the irs already knows how much you owe in taxes you know they, they don't your filing your tax return is is just saying like yeah the numbers you have are the same numbers i have we don't need to have a complicated tax system they already know how much money you made um your employer files that i mean so we could have a we could have a super simple tax return like every other major industrialized country does where you know they send you a postcard in the mail that says hey this is how much we have on file for how much taxes you owe and you write back like yeah, that looks right, and then you move on with your life. Uh, but no, we don't have that. Instead, we have this massive, messy, uh, dare I say, evil system yeah. that people hate. <laughs> it's true. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Live is the show. We're talking about taxes. And our guest today is uh, Joshua Hoxie, director of the Program on Opportunity and Taxation at the Institute for Policy Studies, who's written quite a bit about taxes, knows about taxes. And, uh, boy, that's interesting in, about uh, Denmark and, you know, how it could be a, a time to celebrate how united we are. During the 2016 campaign, many Republican candidates, I think there were like 17 of them, like uh, Forbes back in uh, 1992, I think it was, called for a flat tax, which some people think, yeah, it's really simple. It could be on a postcard. It's, is, it, is it fairer than what we have today? How would top income earners fare as compared to lower income people under the proposed flat tax? Yeah, n- n- no, it's not fair. <laughs> in, in, in in essence, you know, because our tax system has become so convoluted, and the tax, the discussion over what constitutes like a real tax reform has become uh, so messy, then all of these sort of half baked ideas come out every maybe like a five or ten year cycle. They'll they'll make their way around. Yeah. Um, and and what a flat tax is is basically saying like. 
hey, you who makes you know thirty thousand dollars a year and struggle to 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 get by feeding your children, you know we want you to pay the same exact proportion of your of your income as someone who makes three hundred thousand dollars and is trying to decide between you know the forty foot boat and the thirty foot boat you know that the, the, these are not the same these are not the same people these are not the same problems that they're facing and and the reality is that you know the, this flat tax is it sounds simple it's it sounds like an easy you know simplicity uh is attractive to people we want a simple tax plan and we can have a simple tax plan but but you know a progressive tax which basically just means you know we the wealthy people pay a higher percentage than the poor people. That's been a tenant. That's that's an American idea. That that's been in existence um, for the you know the whole time we've had an income tax. Uh, it's it's rooted in in a very basic idea of fairness, um, and it and it's uh, I don't see any reason why we'd want to go away with that. The fact that we could make the tax code a lot more simpler. Okay. Well, that's certainly true. And I would argue that you know there's some insidious actors on the other side of the tax debate from where I sit that don't, that know this. You know they know we can make the tax code more simple, hmm. but it serves their interest for you to hate taxes, right? If you want to cut oh. taxes on the wealthy, and your own personal taxes are uh, a huge pain in the butt to file, well then you know sure if they say hey we'll make your taxes simpler, and in doing so. Uh, cut the millionaire's tax rates by, you know, a massive amount and, yeah. and, get, and save you some time, that's a really messed up bargain, right? Like, that's not a really good deal. You could, <laughs> for no money, for literally zero federal dollars, you could make the tax code a lot simpler with this postcard thing we've talked about and keep the top rates on, on the very wealthy. Oh, interesting. And Go ahead. One, one more point I'd just like to add. Yeah, yeah, there, there's a structural deficit in how we collect taxes in this country, which which is very rarely talked about $400 billion is the gap between what the IRS says they're owed and what they actually collect. And the reason that's such a massive problem is because we know it's not low-income people who are, who are hiding their money. We know it's, it's the very rich. And what happens is instead, you know, we don't invest in the IRS. We, we've actively, for the past bunch of years, been disinvesting uh, funding from the IRS. And, you know, the IRS is, is, is a not the most popular public institution by this any measure. Right. However, for every dollar that we give the IRS, they collect tens of dollars in taxes. And they're not, you know, if we don't have, you know, folks on the beat, cops on the beat going out and collecting from people who are cheating, well, then cheating will, will continue to go up. So unless we want, you know, to see the, the tax structure fall apart based on just uh, chicanery and, and hiding, uh, we're going to need to invest in the IRS, and we're going to need to close that structural gap that we've had for many years now. Four hundred billion dollars—that's a lot of money. That really—and I'm reminded of 1988. Michael Dukakis, who was running for president, proposed, I think, just what you're talking about there—to to be able to close that gap—and that was not real popular, though. It sort of presented an image of a police state, you know, an IRS having more power to go in and knock on your door and audit you. I mean, everybody's fearful of an audit, but uh, four hundred billion dollars—you know—that is made up somewhere. If, if the government doesn't get it, it, I mean, for example, if if the super rich don't pay their fair share. The money is collected somewhere. Isn't that isn't that the case? 
Yeah, I mean, perhaps the, the greatest modern ideologue against taxes is this guy named Grover Norquist. Oh, right? good old Grover Norquist was famous for getting politicians to sign a pledge saying right. they, won't raise, they won't raise any new taxes. Right. Now, I think Grover Norquist is wrong on just about everything, but yeah. he said one thing that, that I think is resonant for us, that if you win the tax issue, you win all the issues. Think about that. You hmm. win the tax issue, you win all the issues. And the reason for that is because, you know, budgets matter. What we spend money on is a reflection of our values, of our morals, of of what we believe is is worthwhile. And if we starve the government of resources, then we're not going to spend money on the things that that I personally think are are critically important to the success of our economy and of our our social uh, system. And and to that, uh, I'm very literally meaning the care of, of each other. I mean... When you look at a budget like like what the president recently in, uh, proposed, I mean, he wanted to zero out the low-income home energy assistance program, LIHEAP. Unbelievable. Now, when you put that on a budget, it doesn't look like a huge chunk. But when your family is deciding between paying for their home heating oil or their uh, diabetes medication that month, and they have to decide, you know, they're going to sit in the cold or they're going to risk diabetic shock, well, then it gets real. Then it gets real serious. It's not just some numbers on a paper. And, and that's really the, the, the scale at which we're talking about these programs, I mean, zeroing out public programs that, that enable people to live their basic daily lives. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's not only heartless, it's economically kind of stupid, I think. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's malicious, I, I would argue. Yeah. Uh, President Trump said, I know our comp- complex tax laws, tax laws better than anyone who has ever run for president, and I'm the only one who can fix them. That's a quote. So what tax proposal are the Republicans offering, and how would they affect those biggest money interests? Yeah, we, we've run out of metaphors to describe these claims from Trump. I mean, the emperor has no clothes is a good one, but you know, how many times can you repeat that over and over? Well, it um, seems to always be the case, though. <laughs> yeah, so uh, with with respect to the president, I, I don't get the impression he knows the tax code better than else, anyone else. I think he, you know, thought he knew health care better than anyone else before he famously said, you know, it turns out health care is complicated, to which every health care economist in the country sort of shook their head. Um, so, so what, you know, the president proposed during um, the campaign was, was massive tax cuts for the rich, uh, about ten trillion dollars, trillion with a T, mm. added to the to the national debt. Um, just basically a, a wholesale uh, gift to the already ultra wealthy. Right. That was what he campaigned on. Uh, he's since tossed that out. Um, his Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, uh, Goldman Sachs, a former executive, uh, came out and said, "We're not going to have any tax cuts for the wealthy." Any tax cuts for the for the upper class, he mm. said, are going to be offset by closing loopholes. Which, which you know, sounds good, great. Let's let's do that. And then every proposal that they've talked to forward, looking at uh, the House Majority Leader Paul Ryan, looking at uh, Trump's um, latest economic advisory team. I mean, what they're they're still pulling from the same playbook. Mm. It's cut taxes for the rich and. Give enough of a of a small uh, table scraps to to the working and middle class uh, in order to make it palatable, <laughs> and people buy it. It's amazing to me. How- well, 
Yeah, go ahead. So that's, so that's an interesting point. I don't think people are buying it. I, I honestly don't. Again, this this political poll I mentioned earlier. Oh, that's an interesting 85% point. 85% don't buy it. And yet, well, you know, if we had direct democracy, or if it was like a referendum, like oh, they do yeah. seem to do in Britain every couple of weeks, yeah. I mean, we we would have a, a direct referendum. Hey, should we, you know, cut taxes on millionaires and billionaires? Well, part of the thing is, isn't it the, the case that still a lot of people somehow believe in trickle down? That if if wealthy people have more money, that will enable them to create more jobs. It's been disproven. Every t- yeah, I mean, it just is not so. But somehow, uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, Josh, you're you have some information that that people are not believing that as much anymore. That would be a good thing. I don't think so. I don't think they are. I mean, again, there's a lot of reasons people voted for Donald Trump, and yeah. we can get into them. But it's, nah. it's a lengthy discussion. There's yeah, a lot of reasons that, that Hillary Clinton's not president right now. There's a lot oh, of yeah. reasons Bernie Sanders aren't president is not president right now. But if we look, you know, just at the issues, and, and really what we have to do here is strip away. All of the misdirection and spin, of which is, a, as you know, a multi-billion dollar industry right now in taking bad ideas and making them look like good ones. Um, and if, if we look just at, at what bothers people, like, and it's actually an interesting uh, way to do polling. You know, there's a poll that came out. Are you bothered by corporations not paying their fair share in taxes? Are you bothered by the wealthy not paying their fair share? 60%, over 60%. Yeah, they're bothered by that. Uh-huh. And then you ask the same question. Are you bothered by how much you pay in taxes? Only 27%. Oh, interesting. Wow. So about a quarter of the country says, yeah, what the hell, I pay too much in taxes. But over 60% says, but I want the wealthy to pay more in taxes. So you know, people, people inherently believe that, that, that there, there should be tax fairness. It's not, we don't need to win on tax fairness. We already won. What oh. we haven't won on is, is Congress and, right. and our representatives who are supposed to be, you know, representing the public opinions and instead are representing only the opinions of the ultra-wealthy who stand to benefit. Yeah, who, who lobby them and, and basically own them. And, you know, again, it comes back to the Citizens United and the power of uh, money over politics. And thinking about the power of, of the biggest corporations over taxation, any idea how much the 50 biggest firms spent in lobbying Congress as compared to how much they received in tax breaks? I would guess it's a pretty decent... Uh, 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 leverage, you know, they spend say, you know, one dollar for every ten dollars of of tax breaks. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't, I don't have that exact figure. I mean, I used to work on postal issues when I worked in the Senate, and I was always surprised by the fact that, or maybe not surprised, but disheartened by the fact that UPS and FedEx combined spend more in lobbying than they do in taxes to try and dismantle the U.S. Postal Service. Huh. Um, which people don't think about the Postal Service as like a big political issue, but if you think about like how the Postal Service was conceived. It was conceived in, in sort of what today would be kind of a radical idea. That, oh, yeah. That, you know, the, in, it's in the public good to be able to communicate from coast to coast. And it's only, you know, I think, I think it's still a marvel of modern public economics that you can send a piece of paper to Alaska for like 50 cents. Yeah. And m- my understanding, before Franklin Roosevelt, most average Americans, the only contact they had with the federal government was... The post office, you know, real socialism, I guess, you know, the, serving the public good. And you mentioned earlier uh, the, the, the estate tax. I hear Trump talking about that they'd like to repeal the estate tax. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so, so the estate tax is, is a very poorly understood issue. And, and, and in modern political messaging, I'm not supposed to mention what the other side calls it, but I think it's, I think it's we're, we're past that. 
uh, it's been deemed the death tax. And the reason the death tax is interesting is because it's considered the most successful political messaging in American history, is taking something that uh, people inherently would support and making it seem, you know, like uh, you're going to die and we're going to go into your grave and take the rings off your fingers kind of thing. Uh, and that, that's that not, it's not even a semblance of what the estate tax is. The, the estate tax is really very simple. Um, if you amass a fortune, and today the figure is a fortune over $11 million, uh, that, on that uh, figure above $11 million, there, there's a levy, there's a tax. And the reason is because the, the heirs with which you will give that money, the heirs, are, are they're winning the genetic lottery. Yeah. They're, they're, they, they were born into a family that is in not just the top 10%, not the top 1%, but the top 0.2%. What we're talking about is is really, they're not the, the rich people on your street who happen to own a BMW. They're not, you know, the, the folks around the corner who have a slightly bigger house than you have and, and that you're, you're jealous of. What we're talking about here is is mansions. What we're talking about here is private jets. Um, the, these folks uh, who who have such massive assets, um, you know, for, for the past hundred years, we've had a levy in place that said, you know, if you if you amass such a big fortune, um, you know, you should pay it forward. And uh, my colleague Chuck Collins um, went around the country with Bill Gates Sr. Mm-hmm. talking about this uh, program in, in the early 2000s when, when uh, George W. Bush wanted to repeal the estate tax. And they, uh, they, they basically referred to the estate tax as an economic opportunity recycling program. Oh. That's kind of an interesting concept, right? Uh-huh. Economic opportunity recycling. Yeah. It's like you've done very well in life. You've had lots of opportunities that, that you've been able to capitalize on that, that have enabled you to, to generate wealth. Pay it forward. Give it to the next kid, the kid who may not be born into a super wealthy family. And that's, that's a really basic American dream, it simple is. idea. I mean, that's, yeah. that's as American as, as apple buying baseball, as far as I'm concerned, that, that a kid born into a, a low-income household should have the opportunity to get ahead. Um, and instead, if, we, if, we, you know, if, if Donald Trump is successful in repealing the, the, the federal estate tax or federal inheritance tax, whatever either name works, um, you know, his personal family, his, his, his children, will dodge paying $4 billion on his claimed $10 billion net worth. It's, it's, a, it's a 40% nominal tax. Now, in reality, it's going to be a much lower number, A, because he lies like crazy about how much he's actually worth, yeah, and, and two, be, because there's so many loopholes and, and ways to, to dodge this tax because of, uh, again, wealthy donors that, that have instilled and put this into the tax. Um, so it's going to be smaller than $4 billion in, in reality, but that's, that's the nominal rate we're talking about here. And, and what that means is that, you know, they didn't have to work for this. They waited for it. You know, this isn't like a punishing hard work. This is, this is telling people that, that have had, you know, won the genetic lottery that they're not going to pay uh, any taxes on that. And what's interesting to me is that if you actually win the literal lottery, you do pay taxes on it. <laughs> And if you win, if you make money, you know, if you get paid from a from a radio network or a, or a political nonprofit, you know, you have to pay income taxes on that too. If you if you buy something, you pay a sales tax on it. If you find a a dollar bill on the street, you're technically supposed to report that and pay taxes on it. If you if you receive a gift of a, above a certain amount, you're supposed to tax on it. We in this country, we have a lot of different ways to to capture revenue. The estate tax, if they were to eliminate it. 
uh, inheriting money would be the only transfer of assets in the country that, yeah. that would not be taxed in any way. Currently, it, uh, assets under $10 million are, are the only <laughs> transfer of wealth that's, that's not taxed in any way, which is already rather absurd, in my opinion. Boy, it seems kind of un-American by my definition of what traditional American values are, that we want to, you know, have a, a strong economy that anybody can make it. And, uh, wow, that's uh, it's interesting. I, I would say repealing the estate tax is, is insidious because it's it's a direct affront to the American dream. It's, it's, it's pushing our country further towards uh, economic apartheid state, a plutocracy, as Bernie puts it. And, and, you know, what I'm constantly wondering about, you know, these days is, is what what would a plutocracy look like yeah. that much different from where we're at right now? You know, the one percent not much buys Congress Congress congressional seats. You know, we we went from having billionaires funding presidential uh, candidates to skipping the middleman, just picking <laughs> the billionaire right in office. People uh, went for that for whatever reason. But you know, you talk about uh, uh, billionaires and and the one percent before Occupy Wall Street. What was that, in 2010, I think, something like that. No one knew what the 99% was all about. Now, pretty much everyone does. I, I wonder about the effects of that movement. And, and you know, moving into the, to the last few minutes of the show, talk about what we, the people, can do about this, if there's any possibilities that we can possibly make that change. It seemed, you know, a lot of people said, well, Occupy went away. But no, we under, we've, it's really changed, I think, our our understanding of what of what the system is. What are, what are your thoughts on the, the Occupy Wall Street movement? Yeah, so I mean, Occupy Wall Street, you know, largely in response to the financial crisis of 2008, in which you know millions of people saw their assets overnight drop dramatically. You know, big banks completely responsible, totally, yes, and not held accountable by any measure. Not at all. Um, yeah. I would argue Occupy Wall Street, you know, they're not camping out in Zuccotti Park anymore, but folks who were engaged in Occupy Wall Street are now running for state rep, running uh-huh. for state senate. Uh-huh. You know, they're in the streets. They're, they're doing stuff. I spoke at a uh, tax day rally in Cambridge, and, you know, 3,000 people came out to talk about taxes like that. That is, I think, a reflection of the success of, of sort of the the framing around uh, Occupy yeah. Wall Street, where we we sort of looked at the economic inequality of today and said this is unacceptable. And, and you know, State Rep Mike Connolly from from Cambridge said he got his political start uh, protesting at at Occupy uh-huh. Occupy Boston, Occupy Wall Street Boston chapter uh-huh. uh, five years ago. So, I mean, what's what's interesting. To me, is that you know we're living in in the most unequal times in recent history. You know, the yeah. older generations often don't understand just how unfair it is to be, uh, you know, twenty two years old trying to get a college degree in order to to start your economic life and re- either enter or stay in the middle class, and to be faced with. Fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. You know where your job prospects are more like you're going to make twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars a year. Like that debt's never getting paid ever, um, and, and that's that's really unfair because you're basically relegating people to a permanent uh, indebtedness. Mm. And, and if you didn't grow up in that, if you don't, uh. if you're not attached to that in any way, it's really hard to conceive of how that yeah. how that affects your life, how that 
inhibits your ability to start a family, start a company, start sort of savings, sort of retirement account, all these things. Uh, it's really limiting. And, and, you know, Occupy was a response to a structural unfairness in the economy. And it, everyone that's, that's sort of written seriously about it acknowledges that no change was going to happen overnight, but there's right. a change in the public perception that's there. And if Congress were to ever catch up to the, where the American people are at, they would be reflecting a lot of the same demands that Occupy Wall Street brought to light. And Congress would be a lot more popular than they are now. And I mean, their current like, congressional popularity is somewhere below herpes. I forget the actual number. It's like eight, six, I don't, know. I don't know. Cockroaches, something like that. And, yeah. Yeah, I, that's certainly one of the appeals that Bernie Sanders had. I think a lot of people didn't understand that, but every rally I went to with Bernie Sanders, when he asked you know, youngish people, people in the early 20s, about their, their uh, college loans, a lot of hands went up, and that motivates people a lot. And, you know, it, 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 tax fairness is something that I think people really care about. Speaking of which, one of the uh, points of the over 200 rallies on April 15, 2017, was to demand that our president release his tax returns. Now, why is that important? And the fact that people are demanding that and they get the taxes, I think, as, as you were saying, Josh, that's a, a significant uh, uh, sign of movement. But, but what about this demanding Trump release his tax returns? Why is that important? So this, this was obviously a big story in the campaign that Donald Trump first serious, significant presidential candidate ever in recent history to not release his tax returns. Um, there's a couple of things that make it important. You know, first and foremost, I think, is that uh, there's a serious question of conflict of interest. Like, does he owe money to foreign governments, and does that undermine his ability to, you know, lead the nation? Is he, you know, indebted to these countries? Is, is there, you know, there's a lot of questions about that. Second is, has this man ever contributed to to the welfare of the nation. <laughs> you know, we, we, we are out here, uh, you know, the, the, the tough thing about talking about taxes is that everyone has something that they're pissed that the government spent money on, right? Oh, yeah. like, I'm pissed that we just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on missiles, missiles that, that are used to kill civilians. That right. really bothers me. Yeah. But I don't think that I'm not going to pay my taxes because, you know, there's this program. Because I, you know, the government also spends money on the women and infant and children program that provides nutritional assistance to half the babies born in this country. Yep. And I want, you know, babies born in this country to have nutrition supplements. That just seems to me like a basic tenant of it's a good investment, so, really, especially yeah. in the wealthiest nation in the world. Yeah. So it's tough. It's sort of a, a split discussion there. But but there is a, a, a very basic question about Donald Trump. Have you contributed to the public good? And uh, his in a, in unwillingness and, and uh, inability to, to put forth his, his tax filings, uh, to me, you know, indicate that, that the answer is no, he's, he's not. He, and, and, you know, the, the implications of that is that we have a president who's determining a lot of the, the direction of, of how this revenue is being spent that's never actually contributed to it. That is really amazing. And, of course, everybody else pays, you know, if he doesn't pay his fair share, other people have to pay much more than their fair share, and that's just not right. And could Congress, I mean, let, let's face it, when, when big money interests tell members of Congress, jump, they just basically say, how high? You know, and, and I wonder, could Congress actually do something about this? If the pressure from the people continues, and, you know, I don't care how much money the interest groups spend on Congress, it comes down to votes. If they recognize that their reelection is in trouble, they're going to do something. What about the power of Congress? 
Could they subpoena ta- Trump's tax returns? I, b- I believe they could, technically. Is there any push for that, do you think? Uh, yeah, there's a push for that, and uh, they could do that. And, um, you know, they could tie it up in the courts, I'm sure. But, you know, it, it's a it's a good movement, and there is a movement uh, in that direction. I've not seen any Republicans join that effort, yeah. um, which might be a game changer <laughs> yeah. uh, on that front. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's Congress has the... You know, authority to do that, and they should they should exercise it. And one thing I, I think is interesting about about Trump and taxes is that you know, I wrote, you mentioned a piece I wrote recently about uh, undocumented workers and and taxes, and and there was a, a study that came out earlier this year, a couple months ago or maybe a month ago, that showed the undocumented workers, you know, derided by the right as illegal immigrants, mm-hmm. you know, these folks who are in this country uh, without legal status. Um, they actually pay a higher proportion of their income in state and local taxes than the top 1% do. Oh, my. And the reason this is important wow. is because, you know, we have a, a, a president in office right now who wakes up in the morning and appears to, to ask you know, look into a mirror and ask how he can find a new way to pick on these, this community, these, <laughs> these folks who, 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 are in, who are in our country. And, and that is, is not only, you know, bad for a number of reasons. It's also just totally missing the, the massive contributions that, that immigrants make to, to, to our society. And, you know, by contrast, you know, they, just looking very simply on the tax issues that we're talking about because it's, you know, tax day, you know, it, there's documented evidence that they are paying, you know, more than their fair share. And what's he paying? You know, there's there's like a very simple uh, divide here that that I think most people miss, and and the reason I think most people miss this issue is because you know when this study came out that showed undocumented workers pay uh, less tax, it wasn't on the you know CNN news breaking right, news update. Right. It wasn't on the on the you know Fox News today, Fox and Friends, all this stuff. No, instead they were talking about whatever he treat, tweeted about most recently. So right. like. I think there's a fundamental problem there where there's a reality that's rooted in, you know, facts and numbers and, and basis. And then there's this sort of fake world in which Donald Trump's, you know, tweets matter more than the, the well-being of the country. Wow. That is amazing to think about that. But you're right. That's what happens. And, and you know, so much of what makes news is just theater, you know, what grabs people. So I wonder... You know, there were these 200 marches. Donald Trump tweeted, I'm sure it was, saying, well, who paid these people? He doesn't understand that people, Americans, actually get out in the streets and make their voices heard without doing it for their own money. He doesn't. He really, truly doesn't get that, I don't think. So there were these 200 rallies. Uh, do they matter? Do the marches matter? What pressure can work? What options do people have now who want tax fairness? I ascribe to this. The, 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 I think, widely held position that, you know, if you want to put your energy towards social change, it's, it's, you got to settle for the fact that it's going to be kind of slow. And what yes, that means is yes. that, you know, does this matter? Yes, of course it matters. Maybe it matters more than anything else we're doing, because not just this issue, but on all the other issues that people are protesting on, because social movements are the only thing that ever changed this country and the only thing that ever will change this country. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm inspired by people who came out and pushed for changes that at their at the time they were doing it, they were considered totally unfeasible. Oh, like, don't you know about the, you know, Senate filibuster rule? Don't you know about 
gerrymandering. Don't you know about all these things that make yeah, your give up, you, you right. know, not feasible? But they said no. They said no. This is right, and, and we believe in this, and we're gonna we're gonna fight for it. If you think about the history of this country, you know, the civil rights movement. You had Martin Luther King, you know, the most widely known of the civil rights leaders. He came around in the in the fifties and sixties, and he pushed for for the civil rights, and they passed the Civil Rights Act, and, and that's sort of what we learn about in history books and, and in class. You know what we don't learn about? Who were the civil rights workers of the 1930s? Mm. Who was out there in the 1920s? Who was out there pushing at great risk to their life and livelihood who said, you know what, this this is messed up, this is totally wrong, and I'm going to get out here and put my my body and my mind and my, my reputation on the line to change this. Uh, and that's I'm not saying that you know pushing for Trump's taxes is on, is on the level of of the abolitionist or the civil rights movement, but but it is a, a is an aspect of a social movement that is important and that matters, and that, that that is what will change the dial. And you know, to the extent that you know that this change will come, you know, what what often happens is is these little things spark up. You know, we have these little uh, uh, events, we have these little news stories. We have, some days we have this big rally, like what happened on over two hundred events around the country. That's a big you know spark that that comes up, and then. You know, we we sort of keep pushing, keep pushing it, and then suddenly change happens really quickly. <laughs> right. You know, the, the civil rights movement sort of dragged on for years, and and then you know all of a sudden we have the civil rights act really quickly in, in, in historical terms. So I, I see a little bit of a parallel there to today. I, you know, I, I think that you know in the in the broader movement for greater economic equality and and against economic inequality. You know, I think that we're pushing and we're pushing and we're pushing, and, and you know, to the extent that people can get together with each other, get out in the streets, make make some noise, make people pay attention, make people listen. You know, that will be part of what what makes change. Yes, it takes a lot of sustained heavy lifting. It's it's not instant gratification. It doesn't work that way. Very good points. If people are interested in following what you do or perhaps uh, getting involved, there must be some uh, websites to which you can point them. Josh, Hoxie. absolutely. We're uh, we're actually working on the redesign of it, but the, it's uh-huh. currently up right now at uh, inequality.org. Uh-huh. It's super simple to remember. Inequality.org on Facebook, inequality.org on Twitter, inequality.org the the website. That's where most of our stuff goes. Again, I'm with the Institute for Policy Studies, Great group. IPS. So the inequality.org is a project of the Institute for Policy Studies. But if folks want to follow along and, and see what we're doing, and if they if they have thoughts for what we should be looking into or studying, you know, ah. I welcome those. You can contact me through inequality.org, and we'll respond quickly. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can we can be in touch with any listeners who heard some stuff that they, they either want to hear more about or that you know we can be in communication about. We can make it happen. We can do it. Thank you so much. Very interesting, very informative, and somewhat hopeful. Josh Hoxie, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate your time. Hey, Mr. Tax Collector, let my pockets be. You got no business stealing from a boy like me. Your share, but do you have to take it all? Nickel and diamond me to death, squeezing from me my last breath. Leave me and my friends alone. You're busting up our happy home. Tax collector, there's a change in the weather. Come on, listen to the weather. Telling me 
If I give you everything, well, can I keep the rest for me? Well, I've got news for you. No, no, that'll never do. 